Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. The bleeding sheep drowned out the crashing of the waves onto the rocks and sand that stretched out below the hillside. A young shepherd, grasping his staff and accompanied by his barking, yipping dog, glanced away from his flock and looked out at the water. It shifted from a deep blue to a stunning aquamarine as it neared the shoreline. A little further away, barely visible, the young man could see a small dugout boat plunging through the waves. There would be a couple of men on board, he knew, carrying woven nets and looking for the fish that teemed here in the waters of the Aegean Sea. His gaze turned back toward the shore, taking in the ripening fields of grain stretching up the gentle slopes toward his village, a cluster of rectangular mud-brick houses surrounded by enclosures for their sheep, goats, and cattle. Little plumes of smoke rose upward from the cook fires where the villagers baked their bread and the kilns where potters were firing their wares. Others were busy milking goats and cows, grinding grain, chipping flints into the shapes necessary for sickles and arrowheads, and shaping clay for pots and jars. Some 8,500 years ago, the shores of the Aegean Sea were a good place to be a farmer. The shepherd's ancestors had come from the east, from the fringes of the Fertile Crescent in Anatolia. His descendants would go further, toward the land barely visible on the other side of the sea, toward what would eventually become Greece and the rest of Europe beyond that. Over the coming millennia, a vast new region would open up to the Neolithic Revolution. Fields of grain and pastures for livestock would cut into the primeval forests of oak and beech. Domesticated cattle and sheep would compete for space with the deer and aurochs who made the forests their home. Farmsteads and whole villages would join the encampments of Mesolithic hunter-gatherers who lived near the rivers and lakes. Farming exploded out of its first home in the Fertile Crescent and remade the face of the planet. Hi, everybody. From Wondery, welcome to another episode of Tides of History. I'm Patrick Wyman. Thanks for joining me. The beginning of agriculture marked one of the fundamental transitions in human history. It wasn't inevitable, and it didn't happen overnight. Starting more than 12,000 years ago, it took millennia for the first farmers to figure out how to plant and tend wild grasses and domesticate sheep, goats, and cattle. Even more than that, learning how to live packed close together in permanent settlements was no small thing. The result was a long period, literally thousands of years, of trial and error, experimentation, creativity, and dead ends before the full package of Neolithic innovations emerged. This was what we discussed in our last episode, the very earliest origins of farming as a series of practices, and how it came into being in the Fertile Crescent of what's now Jordan, Israel, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. It wasn't the only place agriculture was born. More on that in the coming months, but it was one of, if not the earliest. More importantly, the Fertile Crescent was the source for a great many of the domesticated plants and animals that eventually formed the backbone of agriculture across huge swaths of the planet. In today's episode, we'll follow the story further as farming spread outward from its homeland in the Fertile Crescent. Farming's region of origin was tiny, just a sliver of land 500-ish miles long and a couple of hundred wide. 
Even though there were comparatively a huge number of people living there in the pre-Pottery Neolithic, the period we're talking about, the Fertile Crescent was an outlier of a region. It was kind of a Goldilocks zone of favorable climatic conditions where there was a wide variety of plant and animal resources suitable for domestication. There, farming stayed for several thousand years. There was no guarantee that the subsistence method would ever be suitable for any place that wasn't the Fertile Crescent. That wouldn't have been surprising. Subsistence strategies, and that's what agriculture is at a basic level, well, they come and go over time. They're successful for a while, but then it gets hotter or wetter or colder or drier, and things have to change. We talked about that with the younger Dryas and the Mesolithic. There was no reason why early agriculture should have been any different than specialized reindeer hunting or marine resource exploitation. But by the end of what we'll cover today, just a few thousand years more, the basic farming package that emerged in the Fertile Crescent had spread out of that Goldilocks zone and into entirely different environments, adapting and shifting as it went. Upland shepherds in mountainous hinterlands, family homesteaders following river valleys to the next patch of fertile soil, coastal migrants jumping from bay to bay across the Mediterranean. It didn't happen immediately, but over time, agriculture evolved into a flexible and viable package of ways of life that became the basis for populations whose size and extent were unparalleled in human history. Before we get there, though, we need to pick up where we left off. That was with the transition from the pre-Pottery Neolithic A, what we found at the Syrian site of Jerf el-Akhmar and the spectacular megaliths of Gubekli Tepe, to the pre-Pottery Neolithic B. I know, I know, it's exciting terminology here. These were pretty much within the same region, still restricted to the Fertile Crescent, but it's notable that we can see the first signs of expansion in this period, around 9,500 years ago. Beyond the eastern edges of the Fertile Crescent, past the Zagros Mountains of Iran, farming sites begin to show up along the fringes of what we now consider South Asia. The site of Mergar, near the Indus River in what's now Pakistan, was first occupied roughly 9,000 years ago. Soon after, farmers, or the farming way of life, made their way further south and east, into Central Asia and present-day India. We could do a whole series of episodes on this eastward expansion from the Fertile Crescent, but I want to focus on the westward movement of farming instead. Why? Primarily because there's a lot more evidence available at this particular moment in time. In a couple of decades, that'll probably change, but for now, we can see the dynamics at play in greater detail toward Anatolia and Europe. We can understand the sequence of events and processes in more depth, and for now, that's a pretty good reason. So, west. There are a bunch of different places we could go if we were heading west from Gubekli Tepe in the centuries after people stopped going there. The single quarry in southern Turkey from which people mined obsidian, the razor-sharp black volcanic glass that was traded everywhere from the edges of the Sinai Desert to the Iranian foothills. That'd be a good spot. Ashikli Huyuk, a tall settlement mound covered in mud-brick farmer's dwelling some 250 miles northwest of Gebekli Tepe in central Anatolia, that'd be another wonderfully instructive option. People in this period were experimenting with larger and larger settlements, towns instead of villages, and more complex forms of social and economic organization. But I've got a particular destination in mind. If we head due west from Gebekli Tepe, across the southernmost coastal plain of Anatolia, close to the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, we'd hit what at first glance appears to be a defensive wall made from mud brick running alongside a slow-moving river, sitting atop a large raised mound. As we got closer, the wall would prove not to be a single continuous wall at all, but rather the outer edge of a settlement. 
houses butted up together one after the other with no obvious entrance to the settlement or organized streets or even alleyways. People climbed wooden ladders to rooftop pathways, clambering along the tops of buildings from level to level and tier to tier. This was Chatalhuyuk, an enormous, by the standards of the age, settlement with thousands of inhabitants who lived by growing grain while raising goats and sheep. This wasn't urbanism, not exactly, but Chatalhuyuk is one of the earliest large settlements in human history, a ramshackle combination of hundreds of homes jammed together in the middle of the southern Anatolian plain. This was not a short-term settlement, the kind of agglomeration that presumably accompanied the regular gatherings at Gubekli Tepe in preceding centuries. Chatalhuyuk was a town, a crowded, permanent place where thousands of people lived, worked, and died alongside one another. And it lasted for a long time, for at least a thousand years, probably longer. Chatalhuyuk was not an experimental gathering place. It was the expression of a fully developed farming way of life, with institutions and modes of thinking about people and their place in society, both earthly and divine. It would have been impossible to have that many people living together for so long if they didn't have those organizing principles, some sense of how life was supposed to be structured and lived. So can we access those principles at all? Can we get any sense for how the people of Chatalhuyuk thought about themselves and their world? Maybe a bit. The walls of the houses in Chatalhuyuk were adorned and painted with geometric designs and animal figures. Bulls were particularly prominent. The skulls of aurochs, a now extinct species of large wild cattle, the ancestor of domestic cattle, well, they were everywhere in the settlement. Their enormous horns jutted outward from walls and niches. Imagery of vultures and other birds of prey was popular. On the walls, they swooped down from the sky. They attack headless human figures. The imagery was often violent. Wild animals showed bared teeth and aggressive postures. The same had been true at Gubekli Tepe a millennium before. Leopards were a common subject for art, and yet practically no leopard bones have been found at Chatalhuyuk. Was there some kind of taboo against bringing them into the settlement? We know there were wild boar living in the region, and yet while their likeness was used regularly, their bones were pretty much absent too. The evidence of human remains from Chatalhuyuk suggests that corpses were exposed to scavenger birds on raised platforms where they were defleshed, and the bones were then incorporated into the people's daily lives. Skulls especially were important to the people of Chatalhuyuk. This had been the case in the region for a long time, dating back to the Natufians. It was common in early Neolithic settlements like Jericho to keep the skulls of the dead out for display, often covered with plaster that was molded into lifelike features. It's hard to know what to make of all this. I'll put some images on my substack in the post that goes along with this episode so you can see how wild and alien a lot of it seems to our eyes. The people who lived at Chatalhuyuk were clearly living in a way that was structured and bound by rules and beliefs. You don't surround yourself with symbols of bulls, vultures, and other animals and live with thousands of people in a communal setting without good reasons. Some scholars have suggested that the evidence from Chatalhuyuk points to a world full of taboos and rituals, fears of the wild and the unknown, strict codes of individual and communal behavior. It's all entirely plausible. We can speculate, but we'll never know. What's obvious is that the people of Chatalhuyuk weren't inventing all of this themselves. They were drawing on traditions and ideas that had been percolating for thousands of years, from the earliest Natufians to the people at Gubekli Tepe. The bursting population of Chatalhuyuk points towards some of the key dynamics of this period, roughly between 9,000 and 10,000 years ago. 
The practice of farming, a process that archaeologists call neolithization, was expanding. But what exactly does that look like? Were local hunter-gatherers, one group after another, adopting farming practices? Or were the farmers' populations themselves expanding, creating a new pool of people who could move and take their way of life with them? We have some clues to help us answer this fundamental question. Even before these pioneering farmers were cramming themselves into Chatelhuyuk, they were also in the process of crossing at least 50 miles of the Mediterranean Sea to occupy the island of Cyprus. This was a major leap, a jump into the relative unknown. There were no hunter-gatherers living on Cyprus. This must have been a full-scale colonization, the transplantation of a coherent way of life from the mainland. The colonists on Cyprus brought their grain crops, their animals, their methods of toolmaking and building construction, their beliefs about how to organize the world. They brought all of that with them. Regular voyages across the open sea kept Cyprus connected to the trends and peoples of the Levant and southern Anatolia. Those were connections that stuck around for thousands of years. So in the case of Cyprus, what moved were people. People brought the farming way of life with them as they moved. Cyprus was just the beginning of this trend, what's called demic expansion. By about 9,000 years ago, around the time Chatelhuyuk reached its peak with thousands of residents, the first farmers, relatives of those town dwellers in southern and central Anatolia, reached the shores of the Aegean Sea. That was the place that we encountered at the beginning of today's episode. They arrived in the Aegean via two different routes— the first brought farming along the coastline, leapfrogging from suitable spot to suitable spot along the shores of modern-day Turkey. The second came through the interior, north of Çatalhöyük in central Anatolia, passing through the mountains and high plains as they descend toward the Sea of Marmara and the southern edge of the Black Sea. As far as we can tell, these two different streams of migration were basically separate, but they derived from the same source population, the hunter-gatherers who lived in the northern part of the Fertile Crescent about 10,000 years ago. These were not quite the same people as the Natufians in the Levant. There were a lot of different hunter-gatherer groups in this broad, fertile crescent region, all of them pretty small in absolute terms, but genetically quite distinct from one another. They were separate populations who hadn't been too close to one another for many thousands of years. This one specific group in the northern fertile crescent, and presumably just beyond, was the major source of the people who came to Chatelhuyuk, to Cyprus, and then to the Aegean beyond. They had a comprehensive package of farming innovations. The same crops, the same animals, similar if not identical institutions and beliefs, and probably the same language or some variation on it. These two Anatolian streams met back up in the Aegean after about 9,000 years ago. This is a big region. Farmers didn't show up everywhere all at once. There were farmer colonists at Knossos on Crete almost exactly 9,000 years ago, about the same time they showed up near Izmir on the western coast of Anatolia, about halfway up the coastline before it gets to what's now Istanbul. Within a few hundred years, at the very latest, they had crossed the Aegean into Greece. There are signs of occupation at Franchti Cave, south of Athens on the Peloponnese that date to about 8,700 years ago. Within 200 years, about 8,500 years ago, that's 6,500 BC, they were on both sides of the Sea of Marmara, where Istanbul is now located. This was the beginning of the Neolithic in Europe, the origin from which all agriculture on the continent ultimately sprang. Over the several thousand years following its introduction, farming, and the farmers themselves, spread everywhere from the edge of the steppe to Scandinavia to Ireland. 
wonder where all your money went, like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. These early farmers in the Aegean weren't stepping into an entirely uninhabited world. There had been hunter-gatherers on Crete prior to the colonists' arrival, though it's unclear whether they overlapped. I mentioned French the Cave and the Peloponnese of Greece. The tools in the early Neolithic layer are very similar to those in the final Mesolithic, or hunter-gatherer layer. So maybe in that specific case, local people did adopt farming for themselves. That may also have been true around the Sea of Marmara. But, By and large, the expansion of farming was an expansion of the population of farmers, with only slight additions from the Mesolithic peoples of Europe along the way. But this wasn't a continuous growth. It was full of stops and starts, long periods of stasis followed by really rapid explosions. In fact, we've already encountered some of these stops and starts. The thousands of years between the first intentional cultivation of wild grasses and the appearance of domesticated varieties— the slow, almost imperceptible expansion in the direction of Chatalhuyuk and Cyprus, just a short distance but one that took centuries to accomplish, followed by that incredibly fast leap to the Aegean, which covered hundreds of miles in just a couple of generations. We see the same dynamic at play again once those first farmers arrived in the Aegean. They first got there about 9,000 years ago, but there weren't many farming sites for the next several hundred years. Then, After about 8,500 years ago, 6,500 BC or so, there was another explosion. Over the subsequent few generations, less than a century, the landscape of Greece and the Aegean shoreline essentially filled up with people as the populations dramatically grew. New settlements popped up in rapid succession, filling up the Thessalian plain in northern Greece between the Balkans and the Aegean and the western coast of Anatolia. And there, the farmers stopped once again for another couple of hundred years, until about 8,200 years before the present. Once again, populations grew and they expanded rapidly, covering the Balkans, the rest of Greece, present-day Bulgaria, Serbia, and Romania, and reaching the Danube River corridor by about 8,000 years ago, around 6,000 BC. On the other side of Greece and the Balkans, the Adriatic side facing Italy, the farmers were likewise on the move. They reached southern Dalmatia in present-day Croatia around the time they hit the Danube Corridor. So at this point, 6,000 BC, or 8,000 years before the present, the spread of farming into Europe again branched into two separate streams. 
One route headed through Central Europe, and the other followed the Mediterranean coastline. We'll follow the Central European route first. As before, a significant pause preceded this expansion. The farming frontier was stuck for about 500 years along the Danube River corridor in the west and the southern edge of the Carpathian Mountains in the east. Below this rough line, stretching from eastern Austria to the Black Sea coast of Bulgaria, a series of distinct and related Neolithic cultures developed. They often, but not always, built their settlements close together on mounds that got progressively higher over time. These are called tells. They used related forms of pottery. Their stone tools and technologies were broadly similar. And so were their methods of subsistence, which relied on the standard Neolithic package of grains, pulses, and domesticated animals. All of these Neolithic folks were descended, in both cultural and population genetic terms, from the Anatolian hunter-gatherers who had migrated first to the Aegean and then into the Balkans. After about 5500 BC, in what's now eastern Austria and western Hungary, a different way of life began to develop. One group of these Neolithic farmers, not the whole lot of them, but one group living on what was basically the frontier, started to expand into the rest of Central Europe, beyond that long-standing settlement line. The people of this culture broke with the equally long-standing, literally centuries if not millennia old, patterns of their predecessors. It's not clear why, but they stopped living in small mud brick and wattle and daub houses that they built up layer after layer in settlement mounds, the tells I mentioned earlier. Instead, these folks began to build large wooden longhouses, communal dwellings that measured at least 60 feet long. The biggest examples could be 150 feet long, housing anywhere up to 30 or more people, plus maybe some of their prized livestock. Their repertoire of plants and animals was smaller than that of their predecessors. They focused on cattle, pigs, and exactly two varieties of wheat, emmer and einkorn, along with peas. It's not entirely clear how, but especially the longhouses must speak to some kind of internal process of social change, maybe in patterns of kinship, leadership, or group identity. Their distinctive pottery featured incised lines, which gave these people the name by which scholars know them, the Linear Pottery Culture, Linear Band Keramik in German, or LBK for short. Despite the name, though, it's the longhouses that are most distinctive about this group. The combination of longhouses, a less diverse subsistence strategy, and the underlying social and cultural changes, whatever those were, proved to be an incredibly successful package. The LBK exploded outwards from its homeland along the Austrian-Hungarian border in incredibly rapid fashion. Within 200 years of its first appearance after about 5500 BC, LBK settlements had shown up as far west as the Rhine River, 600 miles away, and in northern Poland, an equal distance the other direction. Within another couple of centuries after that, LBK people reached the French coastline of Normandy and the Black Sea coast in the Ukraine. As before, the genetic evidence tells us that this was a demic expansion. The LBK people really weren't out there convincing the local Mesolithic hunter-gatherers, who were still around, by the way, to take up farming. Instead, the people who lived in the longhouses were having tons of children and passing on their way of life to them. Their population growth rates were probably above 1% per year, maybe as much as 3%, which would have led to exceptionally quick growth. Some of those many children then would have gone off to found new settlements. Once the LBK package that I mentioned was established, this expansion happened quickly and without a lot of further innovation. 
These folks knew exactly what they were looking for in terms of soil and environment, what crops they were going to grow, what animals they wanted to tend, and how they wanted to build their homes. The LBK people hopped from one area of loose soil, this is extremely fertile, wind-blown sediment, to the next. Not only did they choose loose soil, they chose places where the precipitation was above a certain level and the temperatures weren't too cold. Once they found those spots, the LBK people planted their wheat, tended their cattle, and built their longhouses, either individually or in settlement clusters. They just skipped the land in between those extremely particular islands of loose soil. The genetic evidence suggests that they mostly avoided the Mesolithic hunter-gatherers and didn't really mix with them. They didn't really try much that was new. In other words, this was an intensely traditionalist approach, but one that proved really, really successful. It worked. Within a few centuries, the number of LBK people scattered across Europe had probably grown into the hundreds of thousands. Despite their numbers and their success, we have to understand that this was a patchy colonization. The LBK way of life was suited to an extremely specific kind of environment, and while that environment was scattered everywhere from the Ukraine to Normandy, it was not continuous. There were huge gaps in between the areas of LBK settlement that were either uninhabited or which were left to the Mesolithic hunter-gatherers. In fact, while the LBK folks chose loose soils to the exclusion of any other type, the hunter-gatherers, as far as we can tell, preferred sandy soils and wetlands, just as they had for thousands of years previously. Again, as far as we can tell, there usually wasn't a ton of contact between the hunter-gatherers and this first wave of farmers in Central Europe. Now, some places are clear exceptions, the low countries of the Netherlands and Belgium, for example, but the two groups often seem to have actively avoided each other. So, what was life like for these LBK people? What can we know about how they spent their time, how they interacted with each other, what they believed? The last question is basically impossible to answer, but we can know a really great deal about what they actually did. Let's start with the longhouse, because that is the defining feature of LBK life, the thing that sets these people apart from their earlier Neolithic predecessors in the Danube Corridor, and which contrasts with the other Neolithic cultures present in Europe at the same time. Houses are pretty important. They speak to some really deep dynamics, to the conscious and unconscious ways that we organize and define the world around us. A suburban single-family home with a yard, containing a nuclear family and a dog, and surrounded by other similar houses, is a dramatically different manner of living than a rural, multi-generational farmstead that's off by itself. Similarly, the tiny, crammed-together mud-brick households of Chatalhuyuk reflected and created a wildly different way of life in comparison to the wooden longhouses of the LBK people. As I mentioned before, these could be really, really big buildings. They're not uniform. Some are rectangular, others are a little more trapezoidal. Some are 60-ish feet long, others are almost 150 feet long. Sometimes they're off by themselves as lone homesteads, and others can be found in communities of 15 or 20 structures that were probably occupied at the same time. The houses themselves were built with rows of large wooden posts leading up to high ceilings, often with a raised platform inside at one end, probably for storing grain and other important goods. The walls were wattle and daub, and the roofs were thatch or something of that type. A single family might occupy a longhouse, or multiple families could live in one. We don't really know what kind of kinship or organizational structure we're seeing here, or how it maps onto our terminology of family, clan, household, things like that. But what's clear is that each longhouse was a unit in its own right. 
It had its own refuse pits, its own enclosure for animals, and presumably its own fields of crops as well. When we see multiple longhouses together in a settlement, they're very rarely aligned along the same axis. There's no communal space in the village to serve as a focal point for the community. In other words, settlements don't really seem planned or organized. Instead, they look like collections of whatever social unit the longhouses contained, groups of families or households or clans living together. These longhouses would have required a tremendous amount of time and resources to build. A modern reconstruction on the island of Jersey in the English Channel, not an especially big longhouse relative to other LBK examples, took 8,500 hours of volunteers' time to put together using traditional materials and techniques. Now, obviously, the LBK people would have been much more familiar with their materials, with their techniques, their tools. There's no way it would have taken them 8,500 hours to build one of their longhouses. They knew what they were doing. But these were not efficient and easy-to-build structures, the kinds of things you'd naturally turn to in a pinch. A longhouse was a symbol of a particular way of organizing society, of a family or kin group, and its rooted place in the world. In fact, recent high-resolution investigations argue that the longhouses weren't even occupied for that long. 25 years, a generation, maybe a bit more, despite the fact that they could have lasted for a lot longer if they were maintained. But instead, once their use period was over, they were abandoned. They were left to fall into ruins. A new longhouse would be built nearby, but not touching it. When they were built over, subsequent structures were built on exactly the same floor plan. In the Neolithic settlements of the Balkans and the Danube Corridor, people usually burned their old homes and built on top of them. The LBK people only rarely, if ever, did that. Now, I'm not sure exactly what any of that means. Neither are the scholars who have spent decades or more working on the LBK people. But I know it means something, and that it speaks to how these folks thought about the home, how they occupied their domestic space, and more broadly, how they thought about themselves. If you'd like to see these longhouses, I'll put some visuals up on my substack. What about outside the longhouses? Well, the evidence isn't entirely clear, but we can be pretty certain that they focused on planting emmer and einkorn wheat, peas, and flax, which was a reduction of the total crop repertoire that the first farmers had brought from the Fertile Crescent. We know that they focused more on cattle and domestic pigs than sheep or goat. They kept really tight control over their animals, though they do seem to have moved the cattle from their longhouses and their enclosures to nearby forest pastures, probably on a seasonal basis. We know that they cleared relatively small fields, which they cultivated pretty intensely by fertilizing with manure and regularly clearing out weeds. They used those same fields year after year. They didn't switch or slash and burn or anything like that. There's some evidence for social hierarchy and differentiation. Not all the longhouses in a settlement are the same size. Smaller ones tend to have more evidence for hunting and craft activity, so they probably belonged to less established families or to later arriving migrants to a region. They probably had fewer rights or access to less productive land. This kind of inequality seems to grow more prevalent over the course of the LBK period. I'll come back to that in a moment. The LBK people were incredibly successful. They built their longhouses on loose soil, they cleared some forests, they planted their grains, they tended their livestock, and they had babies, lots of them. Then their children went off and built new longhouses, either on loose soil next door or on another more distant patch. They replicated the way of life with which they'd been raised. For centuries, they kept this up, spreading their way of life everywhere from the Ukraine to the English Channel, colonizing new regions and filling up the viable spots in between. They probably spoke related dialects of the same language, they used the same kind of pottery, they lived in the same kind of house, they used the same kind of tools, they grew the same crops. There were probably hundreds of thousands of these LBK people, 
practically all of them descendants of those few earliest LBK pioneers in eastern Austria and western Hungary by about 5,000 BC. That's less than 500 years, maybe even less, after they began expanding. But then, quite suddenly, this remarkably homogenous LBK society essentially collapsed over much of its extent. I mentioned growing inequality and growing numbers, with larger settlements, more houses, and frankly evidence for a lot more people. In the late phase of the LBK culture, settlements were often surrounded by enclosures with ditches, earthworks, and wooden palisades. These were presumably for defense against attack, which seems to have been a very real threat. How do we know that? Well, because archaeologists have found a bunch of massacre sites from late LBK settlements in different regions dating to the decades after 5000 BC. 34 dead from Talheim in southwest Germany, 26 individuals at Schöneck Kilienstaden in western Germany, including evidence of torture and mutilation, and at least 67 dead in Aspartenschletz in eastern Austria, which was only partially excavated, so there were likely even more remains that weren't discovered. At Herxheim, also in southwestern Germany, there's strong evidence of ritual cannibalism on the hundreds of sets of human remains discovered there, which probably mostly date to this later period. All of this suggests that as populations and inequality rose, so did conflicts between neighboring LBK groups. Leaders emerged to marshal war bands, build fortifications, and fight their neighbors for power, prestige, and control of land and resources. Maybe there were religious or ritual reasons for this fighting too. The cannibalism at Herxheim might have been part of a system of human sacrifice. It's too systematic to be for nutritional reasons. But we don't really know. The result of all this was a population crash throughout much of the area settled by LBK people. Many areas that had previously been densely populated were abandoned altogether, with a significant gap between the end of the LBK period and the next occupation by other, unrelated Neolithic groups. Where some people remained, and the population didn't actually crash everywhere, their previously homogenous way of life diversified into local and regional variants. Maybe they lost touch with each other over space and time. The LBK as a unified culture simply disappeared. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The people who lived in the longhouses, jumping from one island of loose soil to another, weren't the only farmers making their way into Europe in the 6th millennium BC. They were simply the group taking the overland route. At the same time, perhaps a bit earlier, another stream of migration was hopping along the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Around 6,000 BC, the same time that the first farmers reached the Danube corridor and stopped for a while, they also reached southern Dalmatia on the east coast of the Adriatic Sea. That's present-day southern Croatia, 
and it faces roughly central Italy. This environment wasn't terribly suitable for farming grains. It's pretty rocky and hilly. But it's great for grazing sheep and goats, and the early farmers who lived there seem to have focused on kind of semi-mobile pastoralism. They used caves for shelter and moved their animals from pasture to pasture. But at least for a while, these folks didn't move any further north. They didn't go toward the head of the Adriatic or northern Italy, much less across the Alps into central Europe. Instead, they seem to have gone straight west, across the Adriatic into Italy. In the decades and centuries after about 6000 BC, Neolithic settlements started to appear in the Tavoliere plain of southeastern Italy, in Apulia. From that center, they then spread north and south along the peninsula, and then further afield, mostly by sea, along the Mediterranean coast. In its early stages, we know them by their pottery. It's called impressed ware because it has impressions that were left in the wet clay, many of which were incised. They're short, sharp little lines, basically, and they're pretty distinctive. They look a lot different than the linear impressions on LBK pottery, for example, and they're different in shape and size. Unlike the LBK folks, who were mostly going along river valleys, this was a maritime expansion. It may not actually even have originated in the Adriatic. At around this time, opium poppies started to show up in sites both in the Near East, like the Levant and Anatolia, and in impressed ware sites in Italy and beyond. This is one signal that the colonists who were founding communities along the Mediterranean coastline may have come directly from Anatolia, or they may have been a mixture of Adriatic locals and some immigrants from further afield. In general, there's no reason why immigrants have to come from the nearest region. They often do. That's the most common kind of migration. But long-distance leaps, like from Anatolia to Italy, say, those are also disproportionately common. Now, I'm not saying this was the case, but we have to imagine a maritime world in which those kinds of distant connections were a possibility even at this incredibly early date. Now, even if migrants weren't coming directly, the impressed where people were on the fringe of a much larger and deeply connected Neolithic world that stretched all the way back to its point of origin hundreds of miles away. How do we know this? Well, aside from the opium poppies and some similarities in pottery style, we can be sure that longer sea voyages were technologically feasible. At Lake Bracciano, about 20 miles northwest of Rome, the rising waters of the lake happened to cover a Neolithic settlement. This site, called La Marmota, is remarkable. The waterlogged conditions preserve tons of organic materials that usually rot away quickly. There are wicker baskets, pieces of linen woven from flax, even bits of grain and other foodstuffs. We can tell what their houses looked like because the wooden pilings, mostly oak, have been preserved. Even more remarkable than the dwellings were five large wooden boats. They were basically dugout canoes, but that term makes them seem a lot less sophisticated than they really were. These were big craft. The two largest were more than 36 feet, 11 meters in length. They had a rough-hewn keel for stability with oars and attachments that might have been for outriggers or even to turn these two largest dugouts into a single, dual-hulled catamaran. Even without an outrigger or a second hull, these dugout boats were perfectly seaworthy. In 1998, a team of Czech archaeologists built a replica of one of the La Marmota craft using Neolithic tools and sailed it more than 500 miles across the open sea from Sicily to Portugal. That's an incredible accomplishment. They only had to go ashore a few times for high winds, and they bailed out water on one hair-raising occasion. But Neolithic people were surely no worse at this than archaeologists. With an outrigger or a dual hull for greater stability, there's no reason the Impresa pottery folks couldn't have gone even further. They could have carried scores of people, sheep, 
goats, crops, pottery, their whole way of life from place to place along the Mediterranean coast. Italy to Portugal is a heck of a trip. By contrast, hopping from southeastern Italy, the heel of the boot, to Rome via the coastline, that's a cakewalk. So thanks to these boats at La Marmota, which date from somewhere between 5700 and 5500 BC, we know that the people of the Impresa culture were capable seafarers. This baseline fact unlocks the rest of the archaeological record over the coming centuries. It helps us understand precisely how farming spread all the way from the Adriatic to the Atlantic coast of France. So I mentioned impressed ware, the type of pottery that gives its name to this whole cultural complex, started expanding from the Adriatic westward into Sicily and Italy proper. After about 5700 BC or so, impressed ware shows up at a couple of sites along the coast of southern France, probably coming with people who traveled there from northwestern Italy, or beyond, maybe places like La Marmota. This is as far as the impressed ware goes, though. In northwestern Italy and southern France, right around this time, it starts to overlap with a slightly different pottery tradition called cardial ware. Cardial ware used a particular kind of shell, the cardium, for tempering. This was the style that then spread further to the West. How did cardial ware, or more specifically the people using it, spread? Once again, via the maritime route. They hopped from suitable spot to suitable spot along the Mediterranean coastline of southern France and then south toward the Iberian Peninsula. Like the LBK spread across inland Central Europe, this seaborne migration happened really, really fast. Within a century of showing up in southern France around 5700 BC, cardial culture sites appeared in northeastern Iberia. No more than a century after that, by 5500 BC, cardial sites show up all the way to the east along the Atlantic coast of Portugal. That's an incredibly rapid expansion. It covers dozens or even hundreds of miles with every passing generation. But this, like the early LBK expansion, was patchy and uneven. The cardial pioneers jumped from one spot along the coast to another, bringing their sheep, goats, cattle, and crops with them. They didn't necessarily jump to the closest spot either. Spots along the coast of Valencia in eastern Spain were probably settled prior to places further north, in Catalonia, for example. We have to imagine a few of those 35-foot dugout boats sliding through the breakers and coming ashore on a Mediterranean beach. Each of them has maybe five people on board. The rest of the space inside is filled with bags of seeds and pottery, bleeding sheep and goats, and the tools they'll need to build their small initial settlement. They found a good spot near the mouth of a river, with open flat land giving way to tree-covered hills extending up from the beach. They've got fresh water. They've got wood for building their small rectangular wood and daub houses. They've got spots to graze their livestock, and they've got enough flat, well-watered ground that they can clear and plant with grain. They'll get to work, and a few of their number will take the boats back along the coastline toward their point of origin, where they'll pick up some more settlers and necessary supplies before returning once again. Maybe they'll stay here for a few months or a few years. Maybe this will turn into a permanent long-term settlement, a jumping-off point for future colonizations of the coastline. It was only later, again as with the LBK, that the spots between these coastal settlements were filled in, and cardial folks started to move away from the shore. But this did eventually happen. By about 5200 BC, the cardial gives way to what's called the epicardial. This is another phase that clearly develops out of its predecessor, but epicardial settlements and artifacts appear much further inland. They followed the available river routes away from the coast, up the Rhone in southern France and the Ebro in northeastern Iberia, and then later the Guadalquivir in southern Spain. 
From the coast and the rivers, the epicardial folks spread out throughout Iberia, southern France, and north towards central France. This happened earlier than the LBK expansion. By the time the LBK people were established in the Paris Basin, for example, they had already been in contact with cardial cultures further to the south. It's just that we know a lot more about the LBK expansion than the cardial and epicardial. Why is that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First, the LBK sites that we know so much about were discovered, mostly, during a really intensive period of excavation in the 20th century. Because they're so uniform, it wasn't hard to pick them out once archaeologists knew what they were looking for. Epicardial sites in the French and Iberian interior, by contrast, didn't get that intensive period of focused excavation. Second, the two cultures have different characteristics. Where the LBK was an extremely conservative and set cultural package, the epicardial was more of a chameleon. There was greater variability in what kinds of crops they grew, what kinds of animals they raised. Even early on, going back to the impressed ware in Italy, we can see that variability. More variety in cereal grains, more secondary things like peas and legumes, different quantities of sheep, goat, and cattle from site to site, more small base camps for herding as opposed to everything being focused on that central settlement. A lot of the epicardial Neolithic folks probably focused on semi-mobile pastoralism of sheep and goats, and that's the kind of activity that didn't leave telltale signs for excavators to find, like 150-foot longhouses. What's certain is that these two different streams of migration essentially met up in what's now France in the centuries after about 5000 BC. They ultimately derived from the same source, the Anatolian slash Aegean farmers who had first made the trip to Europe. But by this point, they'd been separate for more than a millennium. Their languages were presumably related to one another, they probably belonged to the same language family, but after a thousand years, there's no way they were mutually intelligible any longer. Culturally speaking, their traditions had dramatically diverged. We know a lot less about the Epicardial than the LBK, but their settlements and houses were very different. Presumably so, too, were the underlying beliefs about how society was supposed to be organized. A thousand years is a pretty long time for things to change, even things that came from the same source. These two streams, moving largely separately as far as we can tell, had filled up much of Central and Western Europe by 5000 BC. The LBK, of course, collapsed over much of its extent, but not everywhere and especially not where it came into contact with the epicardial colonists. Where that happened, the LBK tended to stick around and transform into its more varied successors. But that wasn't all. The result of this meeting of the two streams between about 4800 BC and 4000 BC, a period we call the Middle Neolithic, was a wildly fascinating efflorescence. New trade networks, new luxury and prestige items, new social structures, new beliefs, and new monuments. This is the period that produced the megaliths, the standing stones and enormous tombs that still dot the landscape of Western Europe. Those enigmatic and silent reminders of this lost Neolithic world are what we'll talk about next time here on Tides of History. Until then, thanks for joining me today. If you'd like to see some visuals of the things I've talked about, go to patrickwyman.substack.com. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-K-W-Y-M-A-N.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. I'm posting pictures and video in a post to go along with each episode. I also write essays on current events and historical perspective, but feel free to skip those if you just want the prehistory. Again, that's patrickwyman.substack.com. Be sure and hit me up if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about on Tides or something you'd like to see. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA. You can follow the show on both of those platforms at Tides History. 
I write on other topics at patrickwyman.substack.com. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to Tides of Industry on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And if you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a five-star rating and a review. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound design is by Derek Behrens for Airship. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producer is Hernan Lopez. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.